It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The potential for a wider regional escalation is, is pretty high. And a lot of that could be tied to the actions that you yourself take uh, in Gaza. And this could end up being a two-front, maybe even a three-front war that could quickly spiral out of control. And we don't want to be faced with a situation where our aircraft have to be involved bombing Iranian targets, for example. That's simply not on the table for us. Thank you for listening to another Israel-Gaza special edition of Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. In these podcasts, we're speaking to the best-informed people about the unfolding crisis in the Middle East. We had Economist Defence Editor Shashank Joshi on our 13th of October episode, which is worth going back to if you haven't had a chance to listen to it. On this episode, I was delighted to be able to speak to Michael Stevens. He spent 10 years running the Middle East programme at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, that's a think tank in London. Michael remains an associate fellow at RUSI and draws on a lifetime spent in and around the Middle East, including several years living in Jerusalem. There's been a lot of discussion and public speculation about the risks of a regional war escalating out from the current crisis. This isn't a time for complacency, but it seems to me that there are plenty of regional actors that are completely opposed to Israel but still have a huge amount to lose from a full-scale war. And you can put Iran and its allies, especially Lebanese Hezbollah, at the top of that list. But there remain a lot of big questions regional dynamics in play here. You've got the Iranians, the Saudis, the Qataris, Egypt. All of these countries have very different and complex relationships with Israel and with Hamas, which need to be understood. So I started my discussion with Michael on this point, and we looked first at Iran and its allies, the so-called Shia Crescent. So I hope you get as much from the conversation as I did. Here's Michael. Michael, welcome to Behind the Lines. Thank you very much. Good to be here. We're talking in a period of extraordinary chaos and turmoil as a result of Hamas's ghastly attack on Israel two weeks ago now. Uh, a lot of attention is turning to this regional picture 
and the risk, maybe even the threat of the situation in Gaza escalating into a regional war. Uh, and in, in that light, we've seen the visit of President Biden to the region. We've got Rishi Sunak traveling there. Um, Secretary of State Blinken has also been spending an extensive period traveling around the region. So where do you see this situation developing? Uh, we're speaking on the 20th of October. So there's uh, several aspects to this, which are, of course, um, the Israelis had promised that they would go into Gaza several times um, and have not yet done so. And I think that is because of what you've alluded to, the sort of hyperactivity of international diplomatic actors in the region. Yeah. Um, it's clear that, you know, Secretary Blinken, who has, I'm not sure he's slept in the last two weeks, um, been shuttling to and from Arab capitals and uh, Jerusalem and spending an inordinate amount of time with uh, the, the Israeli government trying to forge a process whereby there is not sort of uncontrolled escalation in the region. And, you know, Secretary Blinken um, obviously indicated to Joe Biden that he needed to come. It was very unusual for a U.S. president to come at that time. But but Biden has clearly said two things. One, uh, militarily, we will back Israel. We will ensure it has the um, the tools, both uh, militarily and financially, to keep going if it needs to defend itself. But there was the more subtle messaging that, you know, we're a democracy, you're a democracy, and we expect democracies to behave in certain ways, which is constraining to some extent the ability of Israel uh, to conduct military operations in Gaza. Um, and will obviously have a deleterious effect on um, their ability to present this sort of extremely hardline deterrent posture, which some of the uh, Israeli cabinet would, would prefer to see. On top of that, I think the Americans and, and Sunak um, have been saying to the Israelis, look, the potential for a wider regional escalation is, is pretty high. And a lot of that could be tied to the actions that you yourself take uh, in Gaza. And this could end up being a two-front, maybe even a three-front war that could quickly spiral out of control. And we don't want to be faced with a situation where our aircraft have to be involved bombing Iranian targets, for example, that's simply not on the table for us. When people talk about a regional war, it, it's, it's one of those sort of phrases that has entered the lexicon in the last 10 days. Would it be helpful for listeners to have a better understanding of what is implied by that? And, and you talked about a two-front war, a three-front war. We're well aware, of course, that on is Israel's northern border, that land in Lebanon is, is controlled by Hezbollah, which is, you know, a heavily armed uh, militia, which has uh, direct support from Iran. But what is it uh, that could, in, in a sort of worst case scenario, could unfold were other countries to get involved? So I, I, the, the relationship that Iran has to Lebanese Hezbollah um, also includes um, a support base in Iraq and several sympathetic militias in Syria, including the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad. Um, and that, that, you know, I, I don't go to these kind of extreme views of saying there's a Shia crescent in the region because, you know, Iraq and Syria are complex places. Not everybody likes Iran and not everyone likes Iran in, in Lebanon either. But what is clear is that there is a movement of, you know, men and munitions through Iran and Iraq to Syria and into Lebanon, which has allowed Lebanese Hezbollah to arm themselves with 150,000 rockets 
far more accurate than the ones that were launched in the war in 2005. Uh, and I was living in the north of Israel in 2005, and I remember it very well. Those rockets were just falling in fields and things like that. It was it was dangerous, but you know the the, the population centers of the country were generally okay. This time, I think um, you know that that would not be the case. I think you would have um, a severe uh, loss of life in civilian areas. I think that Israel's Iron Dome system would be overwhelmed by just the volume of rockets that Lebanese Hezbollah can fire. I don't foresee, you know, there being swarms of um, uh, Hezbollahis storming the, the, the fence and getting into Israel like what happened with Hamas. I, I, that border is heavily, heavily fortified by some of Israel's best units. Uh, and that's deliberately so, because the threat from Hezbollah is much greater than the threat from Hamas. Um, you, know, you know, Hamas had a sort of one in a thousand victory where 1,400 Israelis were killed and, and the number will go up. If, if Hezbollah got through that northern border, I think the number would be a lot higher than 1,400. So, you know, Israel knows where its threat is. Uh, the question to my mind, though, is when we talk about this regional war, which is what you've alluded to, does that involve more than just the Iranian? My thinking on this is no. I, I don't think Iran has invested the time, the money, and the weapons and manpower to uh, defend Hezbollah's interests just to see the Americans come steaming in in a regional war and have that all destroyed and bring upon itself the potential for a U.S. military escalation, perhaps in, in the Persian Gulf. That would be too dangerous for um, Iran. And I think what we would see is actually the Iranians leading from behind, trying to ensure that Hezbollah's damage um, into Israeli, you know, civilian areas and military areas is maximized, but not leading to a direct confrontation. So that seems to me where, if there is an escalation, that's what it would look like. I mean, I have to say, I agree in the sense that I think Iran obviously has projected power through different groups, but especially Hezbollah, which is, you know, the, the best established of, of these, these groups that, that are under Iranian control. And uh, if if it overplays its hand, then rather than having the asset of this group that sits there in South Lebanon with a lot of you know weapons and power, you you as you say you get the blowback and you might get air, uh, U.S. airstrikes on targets in Iran and and so on. So so you can see that Iran has a lot to lose. But I, I want to to help listeners who some of whom will be less familiar than you are, of course, with the the nuances of of this region. When we talk about a Shia crescent. Um, let, let's unpack that a little. Why is it that you can move from Lebanon through Syria, through Iraq and into Iran? And as you say, there's lots of complexity and it, it's not by any means uniform. But in all of those places, you find groups that are very closely allied to Tehran. So obviously, the, the demography of the region is a, a major part of that. Uh, you have, you know, Iraq is a majority Shia country in which Many Shia Muslims in Iraq are sympathetic to Shia Muslims in Iran. Same goes for uh, Lebanon with Lebanese Hezbollah and another party called Amal. Syria is a bit more complex. Uh, the Shia population in Syria is only about 5 to 10% of the country. But the ruling uh, minority sect uh, that Bashar al-Assad is from have thrown their lot in with the Iranians for self-protection and preservation of the regime over the course of a horrific 12-year civil war, which is still going on in some places. So the, the, there, are, there are two points here. One, 
If you want to talk about why this crescent exists, I'm afraid to say US and UK-led operations in 2003 bear a lot of responsibility for that. Um, now, I'm not saying that Saddam Hussein was a nice guy, but what I am saying is that when he was removed from power, that enabled actors that were deeply sympathetic to the Iranians to begin mobilizing and feeding off the remnants of the Iraqi state at their own leisure. Um, that strengthened them. It gave them control in areas where the Iraqi state was already weak. When Syria went up in flames in 2011, there was just no control anywhere. So if you had more guns than the next guy down the road, you controlled the area. And guess what? Iran was pretty quick to identify friends in Syria and make sure that there was a permanent presence there of friends that stretched across from the border with Iraq to the border with Lebanon. And then, of course, it's been investing in Hezbollah since 1982. They're a firm ally. They're absolutely loyal to the Iranian regime. And so what you have are very weak states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq in particular, uh, that cannot really monopolize the use of violence and militias proliferate. And some of these militias happen to be very loyal to Iran and they work together. On top of that, of course, you've got um, airspace. The, the, the Iranians can fly munitions directly into Lebanon uh, or they can move them into the western border uh, with Syria and just march them across the border using loyal loyal uh, uh, Hezbollahis or even uh, drug gangs. See, what that illustrates is the long tail of some of these choices that the, you know, the, the arguments about instability in Iraq that came as a result of the 2003 invasion is is one thing. But but what what you've just illustrated there is the way in which the great beneficiary at a sort of strategic level was clearly Iran. And then more recently, you know, they were they were able to take advantage of the Syrian civil war where you know, more or less uh, Bashar Assad has, you could argue he's won the war, the war still goes on, but it, it looks very unlikely, uh, you know, there's any f version of the future where where the rebels unseat him. And again, he's done that bit with, with that Iranian support. Let's return to the, the, the situation now uh, in Israel. We've talked there about Iran and the so-called Shia crescent. Of course, to the south of Israel, uh, you you have Sunni Arab states, particularly the, the Gulf states. And of course, there you've seen this tendency to um, to seek to, to make peace with Israel, to establish formal relations and so on. But even before that, little known, but observed by experts such as you, there was, of course, quite a high level of cooperation and coordination between Israel and some of these Gulf Arab states. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so some of the actors that have been running around the region for decades, Al-Qaeda, you know, various offshoots of uh, radical Islamist organizations coming out of Egypt, um, posed a threat to both Israel and the Gulf. Uh, bear in mind, the Gulf monarchies are what they are. They're monarchies. They're absolute monarchies. Uh, they don't particularly like being threatened by um actors that have political goals, and particularly not ones that are extremely violent, like Al-Qaeda. So there was always intelligence cooperation. And I actually uh, met uh, back in, I'm going to say 2016, I think it was, the former chief of Mossad, Meir Dagan. And um, he was telling me that he regularly used to meet the chief of intelligence from Saudi Arabia, and they would talk quite often. Doesn't mean they're allies, but they had common interests. And so there was always a relationship there. The uh, Qataris had a trade office uh, in Doha that was an Israeli trade office. Again, I met I met the uh, Israeli chap that ran that office. Very nice guy, spoke great Arabic, enjoyed his time there. 
very quietly operating, just setting up, you know, Israeli businesses and and slowly building trade. But of course, that fell apart after um, another conflagration in Gaza. And then you had the UAE, and the UAE has always turned a bit of a blind eye to those who uh, want to come through Dubai and park their money there. So there's there's always been a kind of tacit understanding that yes, we publicly support the Palestinians. We you know condemn Israel in public for their actions against the Palestinians, but we will work with the Israelis if we have to. And that was a pattern going back probably since the early 80s. Um, but I think generally what's been more interesting recently is this move towards you know, open normalization uh, led by the UAE and Bahrain and of course Morocco out there in the, the West of Africa, um, all of whom uh, felt that normalization with Israel was uh, in their economic benefits, there may be some security benefits. Clearly, you know, the UAE and Bahrain were deeply concerned about the threat of Iran. Uh, Bahrain more than anyone because it has a, an internal uh, sectarian conflict that's been bubbling away for decades, which Iran has taken advantage of. And then Saudi Arabia, of course, which couldn't move as quickly, but you could see up until recently was moving on a path to normalization. This was supposed to be the Biden administration's big ticket policy in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, you know, whose king is the custodian of the two holy places of Islam, would begin to normalize relationships with the Jewish state, um, which had sole control over contested Jerusalem, which had the third holiest site in Islam. So that has been, I think, one of the biggest shifts I've seen in my lifetime over the last 20 years was this movement by the Gulf states to say, okay, We've got bigger problems to worry about than, you know, just the Palestinians. It's, it's time to begin talking to Israel openly and seeing what we can get from this relationship. Uh, and that's been, you know, basically um, a, a set of sort of preloaded understanding since the end of the Trump administration. But now we're here at the end of 2023 with one year of the Biden administration left to go. And I think there may be some questions there. So one of the first things that happened after Hamas did its raid uh, was that people were saying, well, this kills off the idea of, of Israel and Saudi Arabia normalizing. One, one of the sort of challenges with that point seems to me is that uh, if you're the Saudi monarchy, you you don't like Hamas. You know, Hamas comes from a completely different perspective politically. It is, it's a sort of revolutionary Muslim Brotherhood organization, which by definition doesn't like the idea of uh, monarchies controlling Gulf Emirates. And and uh, the Saudis have never had any you know liking or support for Hamas. So why would one make that assumption that that Hamas doing something terrible makes it harder for the Saudis and the Israelis to make peace? Well, I think what's been interesting to me, and, and actually I'm going to put my hand up and admit I got this wrong, uh, was that the Palestinian issue is still far more strongly felt. As a, as a core component of Arab identity than I had kind of given credit. I used to say that, like if we'd done this 10 years ago, I would have said, you know, the Palestinian issue is front and center for every Arab in the region. Then I'd move to a position of saying, well, you know, people can kind of live and adjust to it because Iran is the bigger threat and, and you know, you've had ISIS and all this destabilization and violence in the region that actually Israel and the Palestinian question is kind of pretty low down. I'm having to rethink that a little bit. Now, what was interesting, of course, when, when I spoke to Saudis after Hamas, you know, attacked Israel, uh, was that, that they were so angry because 
their argument is the Palestinian situation has been getting so bad that Hamas has been able to kind of maneuver itself into this leader of resistance and freedom for the Palestinians, which is precisely what we don't want, because we don't want Hamas to take the glory from this field in the Arab world. We don't want Hamas to be seen as a legitimate actor in Arab and Islamic causes. Um, it's a threat to us politically. It's a threat to us socially. And also, frankly, we don't think this will solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. But they then go a step further and say the reason for that is Israel's. Israel has done nothing to improve the situation with the Palestinians for 10 years and has led to a situation where Hamas has grown increasingly powerful under its watch. And uh, we're angry at the Israelis for this. So I don't think it means it's it's finished. It's definitely in the deep freezer. Though, that I think I think Saudi is trying to reevaluate situation and uh, has come to the conclusion that Israel needs to uh, to change its approach if if things are going to move forward. There are aspects of what you said there, which uh, I think any sort of dispassionate observer or an observer trying to be dispassionate, we all have to sort of identify our own biases, uh, could agree with it. You know that the the policies of Netanyahu have consistently undermined the Palestinian Authority, which is the so-called sort of official uh, leadership, which which sits there in the West Bank, and have allowed a situation in which Hamas is seen to be the sort of true defender of of Arab of Palestinian Arab interests. And prior to the the horrific massacre, um, there was even a degree to which uh, you could argue that Netanyahu's government was in a sort of strange way, not supportive of Hamas, of course not, but content for Hamas to exist and to control Gaza and, and to let them continue to do so. But I suppose what one might do to take it a step further is we have to recognise that, and whilst uh, I, I'm genuinely not that sort of ordinary people in the Arab world, and of course we can't generalise, uh, that, that they might support the idea of massacres, a lot of people might look at this situation and say, yes, but Hamas are the only people who are doing something. And I yeah. think it's that, that sort of doing something is the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it doesn't look, and, and I think we need to be really clear here, Arthur, just because we're saying that this sentiment exists doesn't mean that we support it, right? But there is a widespread sentiment in the region, which has come out very, very clearly in the last week, that... This situation between Israel and the Palestinians was going nowhere. The Netanyahu government was quite happy to kick the can down the road. By the way, so were the Americans. Americans have not really invested properly in a solution for Israel and Palestine for many, many years now. Um, yes, there was a Jared Kushner plan in the Trump administration, but it wasn't real. It wasn't going anywhere. So the, 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 the reaction to Hamas's massacre was, well, if you speak to a lot of Arab countries, it was coming. How come no one saw this? You know, this is only Westerners who thought that the problem could be managed and just endlessly diverted, right? And uh, again, it, I, I always get the sense that from you know from you know deep thinking folks in the Gulf that they they of course they don't support a massacre of women and children, but for them it's it was kind of inevitable. They understand the region, they understand the sentiments, and it and and for them, whilst it was shocking, it was not surprising. So. Yeah. The, the question to my mind then is, okay, is there a political solution that comes out of this? Does this highlight the need for a political track between Israel and the Palestinians? Could the Gulf states play a part in that? I, I think these are big unknowns because 
you know, we, we alluded to this earlier, you know, the Israelis are in shock and pain and they want to hit back. They believe that there's a military option here that's on the table. I think anybody sensibly looking at this would say Hamas is much more complex than just a military organization. A military solution may not get you the results that you need. And you're constrained also by the international community from you know, going through Gaza block by block and removing them in the, in the way that perhaps the Israelis might want to do. So does that behoove talking to them at some point? What about the Palestinian Authority? Um, and what is the role for the Gulf states in that? Can we get a regional compact going or the beginnings of one? I don't know. These are all questions I put out into the ether. But I, I suspect that what has happened as a result of the last two weeks is that for those that are you know, can switch off their emotional response to what they've seen. The inevitable consequence of this is that if you don't open a political pathway, that just more violence and more death. I completely agree. And I think what what's uncomfortable about this is the fact that prior to prior to Hamas's massacre, um, I think most people who take an interest in this subject, clearly you and I both do, uh, observe the degree to which, yes, the Americans have sort of lost interest. That basically the idea of the two-state solution, whilst existing on paper, was not being actively pursued by any serious sort of geopolitical player. And furthermore, that the the Israeli policies pursued by Netanyahu and his allies were, were rendering the concept of a Palestinian state extremely remote because of the 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 West Bank is completely cut up now with 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 a you know it's it sort of it's an incoherent territory and and Gaza is you know is run by this this militant terrorist group um, and and to some extent my my feeling had been uh, prior to the massacre was that Israel had managed to create this invulnerability so it had basically said we don't need to bother with the so-called two-state solution we are safe. We keep our people safe. Yeah. We 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 have our Iron Dome. We have other technologies. We we have you know the, one of the world's greatest militaries, and therefore uh, this is no longer a debate that we need to have in our society. And yet that that basically that debate has come back, and in in a very uncomfortable way, you can argue that Hamas has succeeded. Um, that that you know in pushing that debate back onto the agenda. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Israelis have not dealt with this problem. I lived in Jerusalem for many, many years, and I remember... The, uh, the separation barrier wall fence going up. And one of the things that I can deeply sort of recall was that that wall, which it is in Jerusalem, it's a wall, um, not only keeps people out, but it stops populations from interacting with one another. So all of a sudden, 
for the average Israeli, the Palestinians were just a problem over there, the other side of the wall that you didn't have to think about because actually there was no interaction other than in you know a couple of mixed cities in, in Israel. You know, the Palestinians in Gaza were behind wire fencing as well. So really, out of sight, out of mind. What we've learned is that that is not the case. They're not out of sight and they're not out of mind. And Israel let its guard down for half a second. And by God, was the punishment severe and swift and awful. So, you know, where, where do we go with this? I mean, it's, it's tragic and uh, nobody wants to see so many thousands of people dying. But I think what we also have to be frank about is that can we keep going through endless cycles of this violence for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? You know, because the truth is what's, what's happened in Gaza is every three or four years, there's an explosion of violence. This has been a particularly bad one, if not the worst in, in my living memory, uh, that rivals even the great wars of 1967 and 73 for bloodshed. Surely at this point, there has to be a reckoning where people go, enough is enough. We've got to stop this from happening again. Now, the Israelis, in some respects, have said that there is a military solution to this. But as I alluded to in my previous answer, I don't think there is. So you've then got to have an honest, deep conversation as Israelis about how and in what ways you deal with a population of Palestinian Arabs who are exactly the same number as Israeli Jews between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, who are living there as you are living there. No one's going anywhere, right? And if anything, the Palestinian population is increasing faster than the Jewish population. So what do we do? Something has to give. Or what you could do is just go back to where it was and say, well, we manage the conflict and we accept that 3,000 people every decade have to die, uh, but it's not existential, right? Israel will not be wiped out by Hamas. Israel will not be wiped out by Hezbollah. Perhaps that's just a question of building the iron wall higher, right, which was the classic uh, Zayev Jabotinsky way of, of protecting Zionism through the iron wall, but accepting that occasionally the iron wall has a chink in it. But that can't be forever just can't be forever. And it goes back to the point I made about there being equal numbers of Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews in that space. And no one's going anywhere. You cannot fight forever. I just yeah. can't see it. To go back to the the sort of Gulf countries, um, obviously, as you said, they're absolute monarchies. You know, these are not these are not democracies. They have very well organized security organizations and so on. So to some extent, um, what's going on here when uh, these countries are worried about their population's reaction to what what might, if an Israeli ground offensive does turn out to be particularly destructive, isn't there a degree to which they could just sort of, you know, switch off the internet, um, make it difficult for people to move around and keep a lid on things? Not on this issue, no. Um, one of the things, you know, and I, I you know, my... <laughs> day job is is not dealing with the uh, national security so i i deal with saudi arabia in a in a in a very different context usually and um you know this vision 2030 that's been going on in saudi with mohammed bin salman modernizing the country rapidly in a way that actually i think most of us agreed needed to happen was based heavily on focus groups with local saudis right he he did actually care what local saudis thought um as long as they didn't challenge his power so what you find is that the systems of the Gulf, be they in Qatar, UAE, or Saudi Arabia, are 
100% unaccountable in terms of political authority, but not in terms of how the country is run and in terms of the sentiments of the population. The Al Saud in particular, because the country is so much bigger than you know, little Qatar and the UAE, has to be particularly on the ball when it comes to understanding public sentiment. MBS may have his views and he may lock up people that disagree with him, but what he cannot do as the son of the custodian of the two holy mosques is sit there and say on this issue, you will be quiet because I'm the guy in charge. That's just not how a Saudi monarch can play, play this game. The Saudis understand uh, right up to the highest levels and to some extent sympathize with this. I don't know about MBS, but I, I do know about officials around him. I do know what they think about the conflict. They, they sympathize with this. They are sympathetic to the Palestinians and they understand that actually, you know, they can maintain a quiet relationship with Israel. They could probably normalize in different circumstances, but not now. Um, public sentiment is, is still far too deep. And you know the, the position of not just the Arab world, but the Islamic world behooves a certain set of um, you know, global thinking on behalf of the Saudis that doesn't exist in the UAE. The UAE is not responsible for what people in Indonesia and Malaysia and Pakistan think. Saudi Arabia purports to speak for every Muslim on this planet. You just don't have the freedom of movement that the UAE does. Yeah. So that's, I think, why MBS cannot just turn around and say, well, I don't like this lock you up. Now, where I think he would do it is if you started saying, you know, jihad, violence, Al-Qaeda, you know, that, that's a red line. Because that's a direct threat to him. But let, let's talk then a bit about Qatar, because I think, again, a lot of our listeners will be aware of this fact that Qatar seems to sit in a slightly different space, that it's got this, you know, that the Hamas leadership is living there in luxury and sort of marble villas and, um, and, and the funding is going through. Now, I guess there's two elements to this. One is, well, why is Qatar doing that? What, 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 what's that about? But then there's the interesting second question is the degree to which uh, Israel under Netanyahu has been content for Qatar to fund Hamas up to a certain point. Clearly, they're not content now. Uh, but, you know, from 2018, uh, that was very much a sort of a, a kind of an unspoken agreement that was allowed to unfold. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I lived in Qatar for a few years, uh, as long as I'd lived in Israel, actually. So um, I understand a lot of the way in which they see this. Uh, you know, the Qatari government and the population are deeply sympathetic to the Palestinians, but they're pragmatic. Um, Qatar has always seen itself as as trying to be all things to all people. You know, so it would host an Iranian delegation in Doha one day, a Hamas delegation the next day, and then the American, you know, foreign secretary the, the day after that. And and that was the game they wanted to play. You know, they they wanted a researcher like me living in Doha at the same time as the Taliban. That was the world they wanted, right? Now, for people like me living there, it was a bit uncomfortable. I did meet these people. I did meet Taliban officials, did meet Hamas officials. I disagreed with them. I didn't particularly like them, if I'm honest. I, I found them difficult to countenance. Well, that's but, reassuring. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, but I did, I, I did understand when there were political demands being made. You know, that was, that's my job is to understand, you know, behind the rhetoric of these organizations, which I found deeply unpleasant, uh, what they were actually asking for. And to me, and I think probably the Qataris, we both made the same mistake. We thought that because the political wing of Hamas operated in Doha, 
that there were always political questions that could be solved. What this massacre has shown us is that's not the truth, right? That, that there are elements of Hamas, which are what we would define as just pure terrorist organization that want to kill people for, frankly, no other reason that, that they could do it. And I think that has put Qatar in a very difficult position because they have had to come up with a reality where, like the Israelis, they made the same assumption that this could be managed, right? If you've got enough funding and reconstruction uh, money into Gaza, if you built water pipes, which, by the way, were all turned into rockets, um, you know, then this this could be, you know, th this could be a, a position in which Palestinians in Gaza could slowly get work permits in Israel and everything could kind of normalize without normalizing. Well, I think, you know, the, the apple cart has not just been shaken, it's been completely upturned. Qatar is going to have to have a rethink about its relationship with Hamas. It's going to have to have a rethink about whether it can play this role of regional all things to all people. I'm not sure it's possible. And I, I really don't think it's possible. I think at some point when events like this happen, you kind of have to pick a side. Don't forget that, you know, Qatar had difficult relationships with its neighbors. It was blockaded between 2017 and the end of 2021. It does need friends, uh, and hosting World Cup football tournaments is very nice, and it makes Qatar look great, um, but it's not a solution to its longer-term regional position. Qatar will always be uh, an Arab and Islamic country. There will always be an emotional relationship with Saudi Arabia, with the Palestinians. Um, they have to balance that with their relationship with Iran, whom they share a gas field with. So there are many currents that bump up against their foreign policy. And I'm honest, I'm not sure they've always navigated that as well. And this is a real challenge for them. I would not be surprised, Arthur, if they'll have to close that office. Um, I don't think it will be tenable. Yeah. And it, it's it's interesting because what we what we see, you know, Qatar also, of course, has very strong relationship with America. It, it hosts huge military bases. But it seems, as you say, that it's probably going to have to revise its approach, that, that you, you can't actually sort of be on all sides of every argument. Let, I think finally, let's talk a bit about Egypt. We haven't, haven't discussed Egypt. Of course, Egypt is economically in a very different position to the Gulf monarchies, but it's also the country with the biggest population. I think it's still the case that literally the majority of Arabs are Egyptians. Um, uh, it is, of course, the border with Gaza. It has an enormous number of its citizens that are supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the sort of underlying ideology that Hamas adheres to. Uh, where Where is Egypt in all of this really complicated situation? Not least because if there are going to be refugees coming out of Gaza, really the only place they can go to is Egypt. Egypt's in a really difficult spot. Uh, they are deeply financially unstable at the moment, on the verge of defaulting. Um, looking for help wherever they can find it. They're food insecure because of inflation. A lot of their population cannot afford basic subsidies. Um, I always find it interesting that, that the word for bread in Egypt is uh, aish, which means life. And uh, now people can't afford it, right? And uh, I just wonder where that heads in terms of the st stability and structural integrity of the country. They have a military junta there that's been in power since 2013, has not really done the best of jobs. I, I think it's fair to say that their relationship with the Gulf states is fraying a bit because they keep asking for more support. 
And now they've got this issue with the Palestinians, which is the most severe issue that they've faced um, really since actually the, the, the 1973 war. Um, and I don't know what Egypt does here. They've, they've been very clear that they will not allow uh, Palestinian uh, quote unquote refugees into their territory. I think the reasoning for that is, is twofold. One is that I just don't think they can provide for them. Uh, I know that the World Food Programme is on the border there, desperately trying to get supplies in. The crossing has now been opened from um, Egypt into Gaza, but not Gaza out into Egypt. So that's that's happening. And there's obviously a huge resource mobilization effort to uh, provide for Palestinians down there by that Egyptian border. I don't think Egypt can really absorb them, uh, particularly not in the Sinai. And then, of course, the, the, the second worry that the Egyptians have is if these refugees do come in, are they ever allowed back? And there's two questions here. One, is that the end of the Palestinian cause in Gaza, full stop? And is Egypt responsible for that? And two, well, what the hell are they going to do with 2.2 million people? Like, they can't feed their own people. So there's many questions here that, that I think they're feeling very um, worried about, that they don't feel that they can solve. I think there may well be some sort of agreement with the Americans whereby there's a bit of debt relief in return for Egypt leaning into this a little bit more and providing some of the support that's needed. Um, and certainly if you're CC, a bit of debt relief right now is, is well, it's not existential, but it's getting pretty close. Um, so what do they do? Well, I mean, it's clear that they have um, agreed with Abdullah II of Jordan that there is a policy of a red line for refugees. Uh, and we'll see how long that lasts. If this Israeli ground operation happens, Palestinians begin to flee en masse to the border. They run out of food. They run out of water. I, I can't see how you could keep them locked in Gaza. Just the logistics just wouldn't allow for it. Yeah. So, and I think I think it's that's a really sort of fascinating question. And of course, again, for, for listeners who may not follow this as closely, it's important to remember that there are millions of long-term Palestinian refugees in both Jordan and Lebanon, but there aren't in Egypt. And in a way, you know, Egypt has managed to sort of pursue a different path uh do you think there's a possibility because in the end as you, you you've you've pointed there that the the really big issue the egyptians have is an economic crisis uh which is not about the palestinians um is there a possibility that gulf money other money could basically buy them off and and you you wall off a big bit of sinai and say we're just going to have to put put palestinians here or, or do you think that that is still the red line for them i think it is still a red line um, I think there'd be a lot of pressure in the Arab and Islamic world if, if they did that. But then, you know, needs must. Never say never on these things. I mean, bear in mind, the Saudis have already got 10 billion sitting in the central bank there, right? And they've they've extended debt relief several times over the last three years. Um, I, I mean, do the Saudis put in an extra 5 billion for goodwill to the Emiratis? I, I, the taps aren't indefinite. You know, Saudi is running a budget deficit this year, by the way. So, you know, they don't have um, money like rice, as, as President Sisi once famously said about the Gulf Arabs. They actually are trying to tighten their belts at the same time and, and to stop, you know, um, excessive spending if they can avoid it. And not only that, um, they're going to have to start spending more on the Palestinians themselves. So, you know, the, the money... The money's got to go somewhere. And if it's going to the Palestinians, it's probably not going to CC. As I said, they, they could probably forgive, you know, the Saudis could keep extending those um, those uh, those uh, deposits in the Egyptian Central Bank for a bit longer. 
and just say, look, you know, you can backstop that, borrow, issue bonds. But I, I just, this is not an endless supply. Uh, so I, I suspect the Americans or perhaps the World Bank or IMF would have to step in. Yeah. So I think um, we, we've got to a point here where we, we've sort of covered that regional picture and a lot seems to hang on the events of the next, what might be the next few days if Israel moves in on its ground operation. So I guess that, that my final question for you is, do you think that the Americans have succeeded in kind of talking Israel off a ledge there, that maybe they are no longer planning what they felt they needed to do in the immediate aftermath of the shock of the sort of Hamas massacre? It's a good question. I don't know, actually. I don't know how much the Americans have really constrained Israel. What I do know is that this operation has been delayed and delayed and delayed, which implies that there's constant rethinking about what the objectives of it are. Um, what really worried me was when Biden went to Israel and asked Prime Minister Netanyahu about what happens the day after, and the Israelis didn't have an answer. Well, that that really is worrying, and that's a product of 20 years of thinking tactically about something where, you know, we're in a situation here where there needs to be a movement towards finality of this situation in Gaza, whether that's the extreme right Israeli version of just getting rid of all of them into the Sinai, or whether that's the kind of extreme left version of this, of getting a political track, or whether it's something in the middle. What's clear is that kicking the can down the road, which is what Netanyahu has specialized in, can't keep going. Can the military instrument get you either to the political track or to the kind of, you know, expulsion track? Uh, no, is the answer. It can't. So my question here is not did did Biden give the Israelis a, a kind of endless green light for an operation? It's more, what are the parameters that, you know, shape a political um, a political settlement after this? How do you bring in the Gulf states to ensure that Hamas is contained, if not politically isolated and removed? Those are the questions Netanyahu has to begin answering, and he needs to talk to regional actors as well. The problem is that the, the Israelis aren't doing that right now, so perhaps the Americans will have to do it for them. Um, and that strikes me as being the, the, the question that we should be asking. Um, so I, I don't know where this ends, if I'm honest. I, I wish I had a, a crystal ball, but this is pretty unprecedented. Uh, and uh, I've tapped into every strand of experience and expertise I have, and I can't come up with answers, I'm afraid. Well, I, I think you've given us a lot of food for thought. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today in this episode of Behind the Lines. Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to this special Israel-Gaza episode of Behind the Lines. If you don't want to miss any future episodes, please become a subscriber and spread the word if you find it useful. Behind the Lines was produced by me, Arthur Snell, and the theme tune is by Matty Benbrook. Thank you.